Let me tell you about the last time I was in Nepal. It was 2017. I arrived exhausted after a long trip from Delhi, and I was ready to have a cold, tasty beer. So I ordered one from my hostel's bar, and I plopped down onto the pillows of their rooftop common room. When I finally lifted up the bottle, I noticed the label, Everest Beer. You cannot travel through Nepal without thinking about the world's tallest mountain. I browsed through little shops filled with souvenirs covered in images of the Himalayan mountain range. I talked with other travelers as well as locals about the mountain. I met hikers who were anxiously waiting for the weather to clear so that they could take the famous and little bit treacherous flight from Kathmandu to Lukla, where they would start the Everest base camp trek. And one sunny morning in Pokhara, Nepal, I picked up a book in my dorm room, left behind by another traveler, called Into Thin Air. This book by John Krakauer chronicles the disastrous day in May 1996 when eight climbers died in a blizzard near the summit of Mount Everest. This book gave me a fascinating glimpse into what it takes to climb the world's tallest peak and the minds of the people who do it. And beyond that, I found myself starting to think about what Mount Everest means to Nepalese people, how it's shaping Nepal's culture and its economy and its tourism. This is Alpaca My Bags, the responsible travel podcast here to help you travel in a way that's better for you and for the planet. I'm Erin Hines, travel writer, accompanied as always by my producer, Katie Lohr. And today we're chatting with Philip Henderson, a member of the first all-Black team of climbers to have summited Mount Everest. We'll also hear from Amrit Ale and Shanta Nepali, two friends of Philip's who call Nepal home and have special connections to the local climbing community, as well as Mount Everest itself. Okay, before we get into this, I have some exciting news to share. Recently, episode 78 of Alpaca My Bags, which is all about the hippie trail, was shortlisted at the 2022 Traverse Awards for Best Storytelling. And probably even more exciting is that Erin won a Traverse Award for Best Written Piece for her blog, Lessons from a Live Volcano. And I'll link that in the show notes if you want to read it. But congrats, Erin. Oh, thank you. It's so exciting. I'm so proud of you. So as always, if this is the first time that you're listening to the show, make sure you've hit the follow button right now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any of our episodes. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Our handle is at alpacamybagspod. And feel free to DM or email us anytime. All of our contact info is in the show notes. Okay, so Katie, are you able to picture how high... 8.8 thousand meters, which is nearly 30,000 feet, is. I'll be honest, I don't think my puny human brain can like actually visualize this. I think of 8.8 thousand meters the same way that I think about like the scale of the universe. I just <laughs> I have no comprehension of it. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's hard because it's actually unimaginably high for the average person. I, for example, have hiked to an altitude of about 4,000 meters, which is half of Everest. 
And that was already mind blowing. Like you are in the clouds. It also like was impossibly hard. The idea of like doing that again, like mind blowing. <laughs> but to help you visualize it, the Burj Khalifa, which is in Dubai and it's the tallest building in the world, it is 828 meters high. <laughs> so Everest is at least eight Burj Khalifas stacked on top of each other. Oh my God. Everest is also just below the height of the average cruising altitude for commercial planes. So when someone summits Mount Everest, they are as high up as we are when we take a flight somewhere. Yeah. Isn't that wild? That's like so insane to me. (laughs) Yeah. So I think a lot of people are fascinated by Everest because of its height, obviously. But it actually has a really interesting history as well. In 1841, the mountain was recognized as the tallest mountain in the world by a British survey team. This team was led by a man named Sir George Everest, and that's clearly how the mountain got its name. It was named in 1865, but I think it's important to say the Tibetan name for the mountain is Chomalungma, which means mother goddess of the world. And Everest also has a Nepali name, which is Sagarmatha, which has various meanings. Okay, so first of all, classic. The white guy gets all the credit. Mm -hmm. And then, okay, so you said that it has a Tibetan and a Nepalese name. So Everest is actually sat in between two countries, right? Mm -hmm. It's part of the Mahalungar mountain range, which is on the border of both Tibet and Nepal. And it's funny you joke about the white guy getting all the credit because, of course, as we can all assume, these mountains have long been home to indigenous groups that live in the valleys, including, as most people know, the Sherpa people, which I think brings up another really important thing to know when talking about Everest, and that is that the word Sherpa refers to an ethnic group. That's interesting because I feel like a lot of people think that Sherpas are just mountain guides. Like it's the name of a job that somebody has. Mm -hmm. It's become like synonymous with that. It's probably because Sherpas have so much expertise and experience in mountain climbing. Sherpas live at a high altitude year round. And so they're very accustomed to low oxygen levels. Many of them can climb Everest like without any oxygen support at all. And most climbs of Everest would like be completely impossible without the Sherpa's logistical help and knowledge. That said, it's also important to say that the Sherpa way of life is not just about Mount Everest or about helping Everest climbers. Traditionally, their lifestyle has revolved around farming, herding, and trade. Okay, so the big question, Katie, do you think you would ever try to climb Everest? And this is like, you have 10 years to prepare Money is no issue. Listen, I think I probably would have thought that I could have done it as a teen because as a teen, I was doing a lot of physical fitness stuff outside. I was doing outdoor adventure races. I was a forest ranger. I was super fit. So, I mean, I love the outdoors and I love adventure sports, but like I'm 30 years old now. You and I even briefly talked about this in our space tourism episode that it's just it's so easy to die on Everest regardless of how fit you are. And so like right now I'm so out of shape I could barely walk up the stairs without needing my inhaler. So right now it's a no for me, but I actually think that with 10 years of training under my belt, it could actually be a maybe for me. <gasps> really? Yeah, I oh. think like 
I think I have the thing, that teenager thing where you just feel like you're invincible sometimes. I just can't help but feel like all of my wilderness training would do me good. Like I could actually get away with climbing and summoning Mount Everest if I, if I had the 10 years of experience. I think like the biggest, the biggest hurdle is like the, the climbing technical stuff. But you can learn that. You can learn that in 10 years easy. You've got time. Well, thank you so much. Maybe I can do it when I hit 40. Like that will be my big 40th thing that I do. Listen, a lot of people do it in their 30s, 40s. I think the oldest person who's climbed Everest was in either their 60s or 70s. Oh, okay. Yeah. This is very encouraging. So the thing is, also, it's very easy to die just from straight up hypothermia. I know you're not a cold weather gal. So is this something that you would attempt? (laughs) The cold is like the biggest issue for me, I'll be honest. (laughs) I don't want to be cold. (laughs) But also, I just feel like the season of alpaca in my bags is just exposing me for not being adventurous because like... (laughs) Earlier this season, I admitted that no, I do not want to go to space. Like even if someone hands me the golden ticket, I don't want to go. And no, I don't. I don't want to attempt to climb Everest, <laughs> even if I had the resources and the money and the time. And it's funny because like I do love hiking, and I'm down to climb mountains. Just nothing above like six thousand meters. I'm gonna say that's probably my. I don't even know about 6,000. 4,000 was hard. But I mean, Luke and I are planning to go to Nepal like probably next year or the year after. And we're going to do some trekking. It's going to happen. Okay. But not Everest. No, maybe somewhere around Everest. Maybe just like trickling around the base of Everest. Yes. But like not, too, not nothing crazy. Nothing, nothing crazy. We don't need to, we don't need to be crazy. <laughs> Yeah, so the reason it's a no for me is, yeah, the cold, that it's dangerous. Also, like, it's not fun. I mean, like, it's fun, I'm <laughs> sure, but, like, you're in pain a lot of the time. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if I'm able to go through, like, hours of pain just for that. Well, maybe. I, I don't know. It's hard to say. That's why I'm, that's why I'm saying it's a maybe for me because I think – I think I have the mental fortitude to do it. Mm. I just think I don't know if I have the physical fortitude to do it. I think we should climb a mountain together. Like I've thought about this before and I think we should because I'm also like, like when we did that 4,000 meter one, Luke and I, like I was the one that like got us up the mountain. Was that the volcano? Yeah, it was very hard. And I think you and I would be really good at that together because we have the same brain. This is why I think we should do the amazing race together. But we that's should. a whole different Honestly, conversation. Listen, Alpaca Palace, like you gotta get us on the amazing race. I don't know how this <laughs> happens. Like someone start a campaign. Cause you know Katie and I would win. I think we would at least be top four. Yeah. The problem for me is the food. Like I don't know if I can eat like a cricket. Can you? They don't do food on it anymore. They don't? Because of COVID, they don't even do the flight things anymore where you have to like try and get the first flight. All of that's planned now. Oh my gosh. And so they just do legs in countries. It's actually kind of cool. They're kind of falling into a slow travel type of thing, even though it's really fast. But they stay longer in a country. Whoa. So they do these things called mega legs that are legs in between two cities. And it's like a longer period of time. And then they all have like booked 
planes already. They fly them to whatever the new place is, and then they start in different groups depending on how they did the day before in the last leg. Oh my gosh, we would totally thrive. I think we would thrive. I mean, you know that I applied to go on it already. Yes, <laughs> but you need to do what every drag queen on RuPaul's Drag Race does, which is apply every year. Yeah, it's true. I know. I wasn't committed enough. You're just not showing the dedication that we need. You're right. And neither am I. <laughs> You're right. I got distracted and I started applying to be on Wipeout because I also got it in my head that I would like be really good at that. <laughs> I also just like was smoking more weed. So I was able to like make myself think these things. This is key. And this is what I would hope to bring on Everest is just a little bit of weed. Mm. You need to be a little aloof to get all the way up to a mountain summit. I think so. Yeah. Okay. So we got a little off track. But what I was going to say is, (laughs) interestingly, like, I think a lot of people think, like, the height is the biggest challenge of climbing Everest. It's actually not. Like, it's it's a big part of it. But the real problem is that the air thins as you climb. Mm. So when you reach the peak of Everest, there's approximately 33% of the oxygen that is available at sea level. Imagine the amount of air you're breathing right now and instead breathing 30% of that. And this is why climbers call elevation above 8,000 meters the death zone. It's because low oxygen causes altitude sickness and brain swelling. You can become very disoriented and climbers talk about how you just sort of like go into this zone where you can't think straight anymore and you're so disoriented that in the book that I read, one thing that they said is if you sit down when you're up there and you're not doing well, that's a really bad sign because once you sit down, you'll just you'll just sort of sink into it and you won't want to get up again. So yeah, the dust zone is super dangerous and that's above 8,000 meters. And listen, like I can say just from experiencing like a little bit of altitude sickness that it is incredibly debilitating like the idea of doing that for many hours on end is just wild to me and that was at like three to four thousand meters so imagining it like at double that altitude is wild aside from the altitude there are other hazards as well like avalanches extreme cold which we've talked about (laughs) And extreme weather conditions, like the weather can just change on a dime. So one of the interesting things is like when people are doing a summit push, they stay at base camp for sometimes weeks on end, just waiting for, they call it a weather window, where they're predicting that the weather will stay clear and like relatively safe. And then that's why you end up with like traffic jams on Everest, because once there's a good weather window, everyone goes out to do it. That's so mind-blowing. And I mean, just the air thing alone immediately just switched my mind over to the possibility of me ever climbing Everest is a no now because I have asthma and I would probably pass out just hanging around base camp. Like, I don't know if I could actually physically do it. That just completely changed my mind. Great. Thank (laughs) you for that, Erin. So what actually does go into climbing? Talk to me about this. Like, how long does it take to summit Everest? The actual summit push is about one day, which sounds wild because so much time like goes into preparation. 
Um, yeah, I thought it would take way longer than that. No, the a lot of time is spent adjusting at base camp. And like I mentioned, waiting for the right weather window. Um, so the average time for an expedition start to finish is about two months. So that'll include like gathering supplies, trekking to base camp, like the trek to base camp alone takes about seven days. And I mentioned at the top, like first you have to fly from Kathmandu to Lukla, this tiny airport that's known as being one of the most treacherous airports in the world. And when I was in Kathmandu, I remember sleeping in my dorm and there were a bunch of hikers in my dorm and they were going to go do the Everest base camp trek. And for three mornings in a row, they would wake up at four in the morning, hoping that they would be able to get on their Lukla flight. And every morning I would wake up expecting that they would be gone and they would be there because they would say we couldn't board our flight because the weather wasn't good enough. Depending on the weather, it can really completely change how long it takes. Exactly. So it's the average of two months, but like It'll depend on how long it takes you to actually get to base camp, adjust to the altitude. They also practice climbing up to higher peaks and then coming back down to Mm. adjust and just like practice the climb. And then the actual summit push happens when that weather window comes around. But this actually brings me to another challenge in climbing Everest, which is the price. Expeditions require permits, um, support, equipment, insurance, and it all adds up to a rough average of 60,000 US dollars per person. (laughs) The permit alone, which is charged by the Nepalese government, is $11,000 per climber. So some people pay these costs out of pocket. There are some infamous people who have wealth, who have essentially like paid their way up the mountain. Other people are teams that get sponsored. Um, So a lot of outdoor companies, for example, will sponsor teams. Clearly, it's not like every average Joe can just head to Nepal then and summit or even climb Everest then. No, definitely not. Okay, so then who is climbing Everest? (laughs) (laughs) Let's start at the beginning. The first summit was in 1953, so not that long ago. It's like been just over 100 years. And that first summit was Edmund Hillary of New Zealand and Tenzing Norgay, a Sherpa of Nepal. So they were the very first people to stand on the highest mountain peak on Earth. Back then, Edmund Hillary got the bulk of attention for this achievement, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, Tenzing Norgay's name wasn't added to the record book for decades afterward. Interestingly, Hillary is referred to as the first person to climb to the top of Everest, even though there are actually accounts of Sherpas reaching the highest peak before foreigners ever set foot in the country. So the achievements of Sherpas have been a bit overlooked. Absolutely. And that's not the only issue here. There has been a lack of diverse representation in people who travel to Nepal to summit the mountain ever since that first summit in 1953. To date, a few thousand people have summited Everest, and as of 2022, only about 20 of them have been Black. This fact points to a larger issue that we've talked about on the show before, and that is the lack of representation of people of color in the outdoors and in the adventure industry. Unsurprising, 
And a few thousand people have summited. I'm guessing even more have trekked all over the mountain. So what kind of impacts are all of these climbers having? Yeah, so as the popularity of the Everest climb has increased, there's been many growing concerns around the impact that expeditions are having on the mountain itself and on Nepal. Climbing the mountain has become more accessible. Like you, if you have money, like you can, you can just go climb it. You can pay people to get you up that mountain. And obviously this leads to problems. For example, there have been traffic jams on the mountain from so many climbers attempting to summit on the same day. This has raised a lot of concerns about safety. And there are also very warranted worries that Sherpas are paid way too little for the risk that they take in helping climbers reach the Everest summit. Sherpa guides face some of the highest death rates of any field of employment for comparatively little pay. Yikes. And given how little we hear about this in the outdoor and adventure travel industry, we probably don't really have a great idea of what local people in Nepal think about all of this, right? Yeah, we don't. Like, I I personally definitely don't. And that's exactly why today we're going to chat with two Nepalese people, Amrit and Shanta. Yes. Um, we're also going to chat with Philip, who was the expedition lead of the climbing team called Full Circle. They are the first all-Black team of climbers who have summited Mount Everest. And they actually quite recently summited. It was in May of 2022. Okay, so let's dive into this. Yeah, let's do it. It was a groundbreaking moment on top of the world's highest peak. Seven members of the Full Circle Everest Expedition celebrating their successful summit, all while making history as the first all-black climbing group to reach the top of Mount Everest. Team leader Phil Henderson sharing the good news on Instagram, writing in part, all members of the Climb and Sherpa teams have safely returned to base camp where we will celebrate this historic moment. Amrit, a huge congratulations to you and the entire Full Circle team. Reaching the summit of Everest is obviously an accomplishment that very few people ever experience. So I wanted to start by asking you to describe what it actually feels like to stand on the summit of such a mountain. Erin, first of all, thank you so much for uh, having me. Uh, When I summit, I was exhausted. I was happy. I was very emotional and proud. To be on top was very peaceful. I was blown away by the views. It was a huge sense of relief. I felt proud of myself and the team and grateful for the strong and steady leadership of Phil Henderson. That's amazing. How long do you spend at the very top? Is it just a few minutes or do you get to spend like half an hour, an hour? I have no idea how long people actually spend right there at the top. I was up there around 4.45, something like that. Oh, so wow. I think we spent like half an hour, 45 minutes. Philip, since all the members of the Full Circle team couldn't be here to chat, I was hoping you could tell us a bit about the team, who they are, and what the energy of the team is like. Yeah, there was, from here, you know, our climbers, there were 11 of us. Adina, I'll, I'll start with Adina. She's, uh, I met Adina first in Denali, 2013. She's works as support tech for scientists in Antarctica. When I knew that we could have a fair amount of tech needs um, on the mountain, on the expedition, I knew that I wanted her to be a part of it. And 
she was really explicit about not wanting to climb, but wanted to be a member of the team and, and she could help out. So that was great. And then there's Abby. She was recommended by another friend, by, by Sam Elias, who Sam and I were on Everest together back in 2012. And then there's Rosemary, who, again, I, I met Rosemary as a result of Expedition Denali that her and Adina were on back in 2013. In the beginning, we well, we always wanted to. We wanted to be gender neutral. And we couldn't find enough Black women with experience to go further than than those three. So then I'll go, I'll start with Fred because I met Fred, I really, in Uray uh, first, and he was actually climbing a day with Manoa. Dom and I got connected not too, too long after that. Most days for Dom Mullins start like this, runs through the woods, workouts in his makeshift gym, and post-exercise plunges into a freezing cold pond. It's a grueling regimen, all to prepare to climb a mountain synonymous with the ultimate challenge, Mount Everest. To climb a mountain like Everest, you need to have a lot of endurance. So that's what I'm doing. I'm building my endurance over time. Dom, Manoa, and Fred had all been um, climbing with Conrad for the previous two, three, four years or so. And then Eddie came. I met Eddie in Uray, Colorado. I threw it at him and like, you know, do you want to be a member of the team? Because I could tell that, you know, he had experience and so on. And, you know, up to that point, it's like we all had 6,000 media experience. Almost all of us on the team have that. So, and then there was KG. He was also on Expedition Denali, but he had been on Denali before. He's climbed Aconcagua. He's been on Kilimanjaro numerous times, um, but he was from Kenya. And I knew that if anyone deserved to get an opportunity to, to go to Everest. It was KG, and so I wanted him on the team. Then there was Evan. We really wanted to have provide opportunities for people who could go to Everest and it'd be a next a good step in their career, regardless of what it is. And Evan was not only is a mountaineer, but he's a photographer as well. And there are no high altitude black photographers. And so this was an opportunity for him to advance in his craft as well. That uh I think that pretty much rounds it out. What is the energy of the team like? For one, it, it took time to kind of get to know everybody, you know, but the energy was always positive. You know, when, oh, oh, that's what it was. It's Thomas that I missed. After we went public, we had done a few Instagram posts and so on. And Thomas found out about the expedition. And I had some questions that everybody on the team had answered. And one of Thomas's answers was, you know, I want to be a part of something that's bigger than myself. That's what we all kind of knew in that it wasn't just about us climbing, you know, or summoning Everest. It was about us as a team doing something that we all like to do, which is climb. But also we represented something that was very rare. I understand there's a lot of collaboration that goes in. And so the members on one of these expeditions is really important. I wanted to ask if you could share a bit about what your role on the team is, because you led the expedition. And then I also was interested in Adina's role, like the role of tech. I think like tech isn't something people think about when they think about climbing Everest. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a bit about like how that factors into climbing such a mountain? So my role in general was because I had been to Everest and had been to Nepal many times. My leadership kind of leads into even the vision of the expedition, which 
One of our goals was to connect these two cultures. I have a wonderful relationship and community and connection with people from Nepal and a lot from the Sherpa community. They're like family to me, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, grandparents, you know. I wanted to open that community up to other people who look like me because I hadn't, I'd been in Nepal 12, 13 times and I think I'd seen another Black person once. But also as a climber, to understand and see what climbing in the Himalayas is and what it does for you. The relationship that I built with not just the people, but the mountains and the people interconnected. The goal was I, you know, was to introduce these other Black climbers who don't have other mentors like themselves who do these things in other parts of the world and for us to all understand that and make that connection together. So that was a part of my role as, as you know, one leader. The other one was, you know, permit-wise. Um, I had been working with Jivon since 2007 or 8, I think, when I met Jivon. And we had talked about, you know, working together, and which now then also leads into uh, choosing our Sherpa team as well. So because I had worked, you know, with Amrit and the folks at the Kumbu Climbing Center, a lot of our Sherpa team were coming from Forte. The role of technology and like tech, and that would have been Adina's role. Um, how does tech support the climb? So, you know, from power being solar and generator power to, you know, we were scheduled to do a couple of live chats from base camp. We had 11 members and I think we had a total of four or five uh, laptops while we were there that needed to be up and running so that people could, one, communicate with each other, but we also use them to do these live chats as well. The really important thing was our radio communication. And then there's also just cell coverage as well. That's what she did. That's what she does for a living. And she's like, that's going to be my role and I'm going to enjoy it. And that was awesome. But the other thing about uh, that, that Adina brought was that she had also been in Nepal before, but only when she was seven years old. And oh so God. she was psyched to just go back and, and hike to base camp because she had hiked to base camp with her parents when she was seven. Katie, as you know, travel for me does not always go according to plan. Oh, yes, I am well aware. Having made over 80 episodes of this podcast, I know that mishaps can happen when anyone travels. Absolutely. And when they do, you need travel insurance. And I couldn't recommend World Nomads more. When I ended up in the hospital in Australia, World Nomads provided me with emergency assistance so I could get the help I needed and carry on with my trip. Not only was World Nomads able to direct me to the nearest hospital, but my hefty medical bills were covered under my policy. World Nomads encourages all travelers to be prepared when adventuring abroad carry a first aid kit, research local etiquette and customs, learn some of the language, and most importantly, take the time to understand your travel insurance policy and what to do in case you need to use it. If things go wrong on your travels, World Nomads will be there to provide the emergency assistance you need. Benefits, limits, conditions, and exclusions apply. Be sure to read your policy wording. Learn more and get a quote at worldnomads.com. The link is in our show notes. So, of course, climbing Everest is a huge physical accomplishment. Um, but I think that there's 
more to it than just overcoming the physical challenge. So Philip and Amory, would you say there are other rewards that climbers find in summoning Everest? And what would you say those rewards are? There's lots of rewards. It increased uh, professional recognitions. We made friends, good friends. And Philip, do you have anything to add? I think the, the biggest thing is the friendships. You know, it's not often in your life that you get to spend, you know, 50 days with the same group of folks in a place like Everest and doing those things and counting on each other. And it's a different experience and it's a wonderful experience. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I guess like a lot of it is that you're not only like friends with these people, but you're putting your life in each other's hands and relying on each other for not just like physical support, but emotional and mental support. Because from what I understand, like doing a summit like this is a huge mental battle, like Amrit said. And so you're relying on people for so much more than just like the technical support. To yeah, climb. yeah. You get It's like you get energy from, you know, mm-hmm. in that environment. It is a matter of life or death, whether you, whether you like it or not. It is. Every day is that. Having that emotional support and the physical support and having the camaraderie and playing cards and you know watching movies and just sharing so much with that group of people it's so much more than summoning yeah like you know when you spend time for 50 plus days for 24 7 so you know ins and out of everyone Philip, so the main goal of the Full Circle Expedition was to be the first all-Black team of climbers to summit Everest. The expedition was, of course, about climbing and about raising the number of Black people who have summited. But I think that representation is much more than a number. What do you and your team hope the success of this expedition will do for changing the narrative around Black people and the outdoors? Up until that point, there had only been 10 Black people around the world who had summited Everest. That means that's 10 people who could even talk about the Everest experience. You know, that's one of the things that can change is the people who can actually talk about it, the people in our community that can talk about climbing Everest and the Everest experience from experience, not just from what they read. That was a big part of it. The other part was the cultural relationships and really knowing you know, the Nepali culture and Sherpa community. You know, Amrit and I have spent more time together in the mountains, I think, than some of my friends here in the U.S. And so really connecting with that culture and being able to to talk about it and explain to people that a Sherpa is not just someone who carries your things on the mountain. A Sherpa is actually a caste of people, and they have their own culture, as well as the other caste of people in Nepal, you know, which... Shanta and, and Amrit, who, who are not Sherpa, or some of the other folks that we work with in Kathmandu and porters, you know, along the way, who are also, you know, helping us along the way and carrying things for who aren't Sherpa. So under having that under that cultural understanding and that, that cultural competency to actually help move forward, you know, the education of, of mountaineering and what climbing Everest really entails. It's not just summoning the mountain, it entails connecting with a lot of different cultures in a, in a small country, understanding the connection between the people and the environment as well. I mean, I know for a lot of my life, like the only exposure I had to like the concept of summiting Everest would just be like this photo of typically like a white person at the summit of Everest. And in that photo, like you don't know all 
the people and community that are behind what made that photo happen. What I'm hearing is that by more Black people summiting Everest, they're bringing this experience back to the community and showing the community that this experience is available to them as well. For sure. Cause, and, and by doing that, like I'm, I know more people now who, you know, they're mountaineers and they never really thought that they would even attempt it because they never seen someone like themselves going it. It just seemed like that far out, even though they're still mountaineers. That has changed. It's like, no, people really see themselves and they say, and that's not just climbers. That are even, that's even people who just want to go to Nepal or go to any place. That's the beauty of it because we're talking about Everest and we're, and we're talking about American people. But this is like we connected with the Nepali culture. We were talking with the Nepali Youth Leadership Council and they were saying the same thing about wanting to be connected with nature but then also understanding that there's differences in caste systems and what people have traditionally been allowed to do and what roles they play in society and those things. So there's so much for me than climbing Everest. It's everything, yeah. This is the perfect moment to shift towards talking about another underrepresented group when it comes to climbing Everest. The mountain and the Himalayas are home for Sherpas and for Nepalese people. Amri and Shanta, can you share with us your personal relationship to Everest and how Nepalese people in general connect with Everest and other mountains in the region? Uh, I would say uh, not on the not only the Mount Everest, the mountains are really close to me because I am personally come from the eastern part of Nepal and there is no like no particular mountain that I can see every day and or that I that I can imagine to climb. Uh, I worked as a filmmaker and travel um, inside and outside. During my work, I went to the mountain area and then I felt like, okay, this is the place that I can, you know, feel included, feel so relaxed. So the mountain, uh, especially the Everest, is for me is the symbol for inclus- inclusiveness and then included that I can see, uh, see and then, you know, imagine one day I can be there in the top of the in top of the Everest, not on not only as a physical but also as we already talked about the many things we can you know climb not only physical mountain but people have their own mountain own Everest in their life, so I can I can see as my you know um, inspiration as a mountain or Everest. And Amri, how about you? Of course, uh, uh, Mount Everest is the pride of Nepal, for me as a Nepalese, uh, not only Mount Everest, all the mountains are, all the mountains I respect it, and yeah, and deep respect for me. Um, so since the first summit of Everest in the 1800s, the bulk of attention and coverage when it comes to the mountain has been focused on Western and European climbers. Often the fact that Nepalese climbers have made the summit possible through guiding and support is left out of the story. In 2019, Nims Purja brought attention to the lack of Nepalese representation in climbing by leading a Nepalese team to climb 14 of the tallest mountains in the world. I watched his documentary, which is how I came to know about this, and 
Yeah. So Amrit Tanshanta, do you feel that in recent years, as this issue has gained a bit more coverage, that there is growing visibility for Nepalese climbers in the mountaineering community? Are you seeing any change? Yeah, Erin, I agree with you. And, and I agree with the foot in peak. Um, uh, it's really, you know, inspiring. Whatever he did is really uh, motivating for everyone, not only for the Nepalese people, Nepalese climbers, or internationally who never climb or never imagined, uh, you know, to climb the mountain. This film certainly gives the, you know, recognition for the, you know, especially Nepalese um, mountain ring community, especially Sherpas, uh, who, you know, climbed or worked many, many years and never got the recognition uh, from any, you know, place. So definitely this um, film gives a certain, you know, recognition in, in, in international arena. And then after this film, I have also experienced or known personally many Sherpas are getting more opportunities uh, because they have already experienced in the mountain. But, um, you know, after the film or after uh, not only the 14 Peaks, but after, you know, the films that um, come outside and people know more about Nepal, uh, people are coming just, you know, to travel. Uh, I've seen many people who never imagined in their life to, you know, go to the Everest or go to the any 6,000 or 7,000 meter in Himalayas. After watching this film, they come to Nepal and then that helps to, you know, promote Nepali tourism at the same time, giving opportunities to uh, mountain you know, communities and then even Sherpas getting, you know, exposure. So I certainly, I know, agree with that. Mm-hmm. I That's something I learned myself when I was in Nepal in, I think it was 2017. I had gone there thinking like, oh, I'm not a mountaineer. I'm not sure like that I'll be able to get out into the mountains. And I wasn't prepared to do base camp, but I did tons of hiking with local guides that I didn't like really know I could do until I was actually there. And I just had such an amazing time and just learned so much. I think a lot of people don't realize, and maybe it's becoming more common knowledge now that there's a lot of like quite easy and moderate hiking that you can do there, even if you're not like a real mountaineer. And Amri, how about you? Are you feeling that there's more visibility for Nepalese climbers in the mountaineering community in recent years? Yes, for definite. Especially after uh, Nims Burja's movie on Netflix, 14 Pigs. I have lots of friends abroad and every one of them have watched uh, this movie and asked, Amrit, have you watched this? You know, uh, that means, of course, people have known more about Nepal. And also because of this, it has raised the profile of Nepalese Nepal a bit. And also there are a growing number of Nepalese mountaineers who are climbing for the climbing sake. Two years ago, there was an all-Nepali first winter K2 expedition. And uh, there is an, a project going on on Choyu. You know, the Nepali team, they're trying to climb from Nepal side. Uh, not from Tibet side, that never been done in the past, and there is still the project is going on. And also, there are now a more Nepali-owned guiding outfits uh, getting more popular than, um, than the international companies. Yeah, I mean, Everest is a huge contributor to Nepal's economy and tourism industry. I was curious about how much like it contributes to the economy 
specifically. So I did some research and I read that in 2019, Everest expeditions alone contributed over $300 million to the Nepalese economy. And I can just say like from personal experience, when I was there, there was plenty of tourism economy around Everest, even if you aren't going to base camp or climbing Everest yourself. For example, while I was there, I did an Everest flight. So I took a flight around um, the summit of Everest so that I could see it, which was an amazing experience. Yeah, so it felt very much like when I was there that Everest was infused in the experience of being in Nepal, even if you're not climbing yourself. So Amrita and Shanta, can you share how tourism Nepal is benefiting local people? So um, personally, um, tourism, not only giving the, you know, you know, money to the government or to the Nepali government, but also giving the opportunities for, to work, uh, you know, uh, or earn or getting ge- getting good life uh, in, you know, in the mountain areas, especially Sherpa communities, they are, you know, their life is fully depend on the mountain so uh, if there is no tourist, if there is no, you know, activities, tourism activities, their life or their, you know, earning, you know, will be finished. So regarding the, you know, tourism, uh, regarding the life, um, I think not only the Sherpa, not only the mountain community, but also people who uh, have many um, business in Kathmandu or other, you know, cities. Uh, so many jobs are underneath. Even I also work um, in the outside or in the you know mountain in the um, so I'm also rely on tourism. These things, these things we mostly realize during the COVID time. Everything was shut down. Nothing was there. You know, no tourists, no activities. No people can go outside, and then people cannot work. So it was really hard for us to you know uh, survive as well. So tourism is the one of the key uh, income source for the Nepali tourism, and not only for the uh, state or government. Yes, I already repeated. Um, for the people who lives in the mountain, who people who work, uh, people porter, you know, everyone. Yeah, I mean, uh, so tourism is a huge part for Nepal. Actually, for me, this is what I've, I have done um, since my twenties at Santa Sits. Tourism that's generating jobs across all sectors, um, being a mountain guide, city guys, jungle, river, hotel, restaurants, shops. Because of tourism, you know, it has raised the standards of living on the people. On this podcast, often we'll talk about sort of the balance between when tourism does good and when it can do bad. Um, because in some cases, we've seen examples around the world of where tourism just overwhelms a local community, and then it can go into the area of over-tourism. So I wanted to ask if there are any negative impacts from tourism that either of you have noticed, like an impact on local culture or way of life or the environment. Amri, do you have something to share? There is always positive and negative, right? So as you said, it's overwhelming. It's some, some places, it's, it's overcrowds, let's say up in Everest. We had huge crowds in Manaslu this fall in September. Because of that, the pollution, of course, um, the environmental degradation, the waste, 
I think um, the government has to come up with some certain, you know, strategy because we have huge, huge, uh, you know, income source from tourism, and then there is some sort of responsibility from from the government that they have to come up with because pollution, overcrowded, you know, so many things, you know, coming up with the positive sides, but. Um, at the same time, we also expect from government, for Nepal, especially Nepali government, has to come up with this strategy to balance uh, this. And last couple of years, in inside of Nepal as well, the domestic tourism also growing very fast because um, I travel a lot inside Nepal and then I, I see a lot of Nepalese people traveled inside. But um, there are some sort of people has to understand how to, you know, when you travel, there is some sort of uh, responsibility as a traveler, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I can see a lot of uh, positive changes at the same time negative as well. But I, I really want to say um, government has to think about uh, seriously uh, about tourism in Nepal, how to save, uh, how to save culture, how to save nature, how to, you know, do uh, the development in terms of not only making roads, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I really like to find a balance. Maybe our government should restrict the number of permits each climbing seasons and, and, and different mountain, you know. That maybe there should be a lottery system like when you raft the Grand Canyon, right? There's a lottery system. Maybe less luxury setups up in the mountains. You know, when when you go up in the Everest expeditions, there are some guiding outfitters they offer like coffee bar and you know very luxury uh, stuff at the base camp, which is I don't think you need those. You know, of, of course we need some sort of comfort when you're climbing the mountains, uh, but it shouldn't be like too luxurious. Like for me myself, I mean, having uh, working in the North American mountains in the Rockies, like and then climbing Denali. It's, it's a self-supported, right? Everything has to be very minimum. So how can we impact less? It should be like that in our Himalayas as well. That's what our government should think of. I want to go back to something you mentioned to Amri about how crowded Everest has become. Because actually, and they touch on this in the documentary 14 Peaks, Nims Purja had shared an image of just the lineup of climbers that were on the mountain that day. And it brought up a lot of discussion in the media about like what this means for Everest. And I guess like one thing that I was thinking is, I'm sure that like when there's that many people in line to summit that it takes away from the experience of the climbers as well because you're stuck in this sort of line. I imagine that it also like isn't super safe. Like I'm wondering if these crowds take away from the experiences of climbers themselves and also potentially are dangerous for climbers. Yeah, it indeed it's it's very dangerous. It's it's very sad that people want to climb mountain for the sake of oh I did this. You know, I'm fortunate. I mean, I, I get to climb with all climbers, with all black team. Um, there are people who come and climb Everest that who never been in the mountain before, who never had crampons on. They don't have any experience whatsoever in the past. And that's what, you know, it creates uh, that problem up in the mountain. And I guess it's because Everest is the tallest. So people want to be able to say that they climbed the tallest mountain, even though there's like many other 8,000 plus meter high mountains that you can climb. 
it's just that Everest is the tallest. Everyone has a right to go to, you know, a mountain, climb Everest or any mountain in the world. You know, you can climb. There is no restriction, but there is a process that you can have to go through it. You're not going, you're not just going to climb, you know, physical mountain, but there is so many process and you have to get to know the people, you have to get to know the culture, you have to get to the mountains, yourself, your body, you know. Earlier we talked about like you no know, overcrowding and then, you know, promoting tourism, you know, people are coming, that's positive side, yes. But at the same time, there is a number of people uh, who, you know, actually don't have that experience in the mountain, you know. So that's overcrowding as well. People who really want to climb or who really be in the mountain just want to request, like, please just go through some sort of process and then come in the mountain and you'll get to, you know, understand on yourself as well. That's like a criticism that I've I've seen brought up about Samadine Everest that I guess it's now possible that if you want, you can just pay your way up the mountain regardless of what experience you have. Right, yeah. It's great to for me to hear other people say that. But really, when you put it all together, like what Amrit mentioned, like maybe prerequisites of, you know, having climbed other 6,000 meter peaks previously. You know, Shanta is saying like, get to know your body, to know the mountains, know the culture. You only know that through experience. And so when people want to become mountaineers, it's like, yeah, you have to go through the through through these experiences. You got to pay your dues. And what what we're seeing now is people don't pay their dues; they just pay their money, and that is one way that we could really kind of change the culture, but still have you know tourism in a positive way. But people, you know, have it to really understand what mountaineering is. It's not just something that you buy your way into. I would love to hear um, if you have one positive change that you hope to see in the mountaineering community in the coming years and how regular people can support that change. One thing that I'd really like to see is, again, just more people, period, who haven't been mountaineering before, try it, get into it. Whether that, and when I say mountaineering, that means climbing, ice climbing, rock climbing. Again, it's that recognition that you all were talking about just recently. And I don't mean representation, but I mean recognition of, you know, Nepal being this wonderful place. You know, you can, Learn to climb in Nepal just as well as you can learn to climb here and recognize that, you know, folks who are climbing and guiding and trekking guides and porters and all of those things that they're a part of the outdoor economy as well, whether we realize it or not. So even just common folks like you, it's like you didn't call yourself a mountaineer, but it's like, wow, I can really go to Nepal and do some really cool hiking. I can hire a guide and put money into that economy and really get to know the culture at the same time. Just really exposing more people, which means more of the community in which I come to, because I already know that, you know, from going to Nepal, that there's already so many people who are going from so many other communities and they have been for so many years. And so that's why I want to see that change. It's a boost in the economy, not just in representation as well. The one positive change that I want to see in the modern community in the coming years would be to increase the level of the training uh, through the programs that we run here in uh, Kumbu. It's called Kumbu Climbing Centers. Our mission is to increase the safety margin of climbers, the high altitude workers, 
and it's not only the technical uh, aspects uh, we also you know teach about the environmental ethics um, and you know social responsibilities so not only Kumbu climbing center there should be other and people should support uh, an organization like uh, like Kumbu climbing center yeah for me i want to see more people like felita for more people like me more people like amrit in the mountain community i don't see um, many people many women many communities that are underrepresented in the in mountain community so yeah that's that's a positive you know change i want to see in the future Many of our listeners probably aren't going to be summiting Everest, but given this, I wanted to ask if you could both give a tip for any traveler coming to Nepal. A lot of our listeners are avid travelers, and I'm sure a lot of them plan to come to Nepal if they haven't already. So what is one thing that you would like visitors to know or to do when they come and visit Nepal? Nepal is not only about the mountain. Mountain is just, just one part. It's about the people who live here. It's a diverse culture. There are rivers, there are jungles. People come with an open mind and open heart to observe and ask questions and not, not, not judge. I agree with um, Amrit and I would like to say, please come and experience, like, you know, experience. It's not just um, money that you pay and then, you know, you fly, go, track, you know, just reach the point and then fly back your home. It's not just about that. It's more than that. Just experience and then you'll be like, as um, uh, Philip Dai said, he has been in Nepal for many years and then Nepal is second home for him. And then for us, after the full circle, you know, expedition, this is our family, you know, not just uh, as a work, work, work. So this is our family. We have been, you know, friends for a you know, lifetime. So you have to come and experience that you know, relationship with the people, you know, experience with the culture. You can, you can you know, have that experience for a lifetime. So just come with, with that and come for the experience. Do you have recommendations for where people could go for good food or like where can people go to have those experiences? <laughs> but I, people always want to know about food and Nepal has so very many, good food. Yes. So I have to, so I have many to bring that up. Yeah, so many recommendations. If you come to Kathmandu, you will have so many good food, so many places that you can go. There is a culture, there is a monument. Uh, in mountain areas, you can have um, Everest region, Annapurna, other, other unexplored area that you can go and then experience, you know, stay with the families, you know, make friends, make anything. That, so many, so many recommendations. I can't count in one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we need we need another uh, podcast. Uh, yeah, we need another recommendation. Another <laughs> <laughs> I'm planning to come back next year, and I will email you for things. <laughs> and Philip, I'm going to ask you as well because I know you've spent a lot of time in Nepal. You spend a lot of time mountaineering, but what is something people should do in Nepal outside of mountains? No, <laughs> Bhaktapur is is a really cool place to go. It's one of the old ancient kingdoms in the Kathmandu Valley. Um, unfortunately, it was a lot of damage from the earthquake back in 2015, but they've been doing a lot of rebuilding and so on, but it's still a really nice place to go. I still want to travel south. I want to go to, to Pokhara down in the in the valley where it's warm and, and not freezing cold all the time. 
and I want to learn to paraglide, so I want to do it in Nepal instead of doing it somewhere else. So. Thanks for listening to the show, Alpaca Pals. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share it with a fellow traveler and make sure you're following us on your favorite podcast app. And if you're feeling extra generous, you can leave us a five-star review or you can support us on Patreon. Anything you can do to support this show will help to foster meaningful change throughout the travel industry. Alpaca My Bags is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and it's produced and edited by Katie Lohr in Canada's Toronto area. If you want to reach out to us, check the show notes for all the info you need. I'll see you in two weeks, but in the meantime, I hope you get to alpaca your bags safely and soon. <laughs>